being successful, becoming complacent, becoming arrogant, becoming a coach or a person that, eh, like what difference does it make? I am whoever I am is a scary thing, especially in this business. I need to be around people that challenge me. It's human nature to be successful or to win or have something go in your favor and just assume that it'll be just that easy to do again. That's not this. That's not this game. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome the associate head coach for Virginia Tech basketball, Mike Jones. Coach Jones is here today to discuss takeaways from Virginia Tech's late season resurgence, coaching as the hunter and the hunted, learning from the legendary Morgan Wooten, and we talk elite guard play, unique pick and roll locations, and analytics that matter during the always fun start, sub, or sit. For those looking to explore and grow this offseason, you can join coaches from over 30 different countries who've joined the SG Plus community. Learn and connect at your pace by getting access to thousands of hours of our best breakdown videos, deep dive newsletters, Q&A sessions, and inclusion in the private Coaches Corner community. For more information, visit slappingglass.com today. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Mike Jones. Coach, congratulations on a great season, and thank you very much for joining us this morning. Uh, thank you guys for having me. I am a huge fan of Slapping Glass, and uh, I'm so excited to be a part of this today. Thank you, Coach. We appreciate that. Thank you, Coach. We're excited to talk with you about a bunch of stuff today, and we want to start with your takeaways from going on a late season run that you know saw you guys win the ACC tournament, get to the NCAA tournament, and your learnings from that run. I think the biggest thing uh, was just the fact that the resiliency of our team and the approach that our head coach took with our team. You know, at one point in time, we were 10 and 10. We started out ACC play 0 and 4 and then 2 and 7. And the seventh loss being a half court buzzer beater where we thought we played well enough to win and we didn't. And I've been around basketball long enough to know that a lot of times teams in that situation they can literally just tumble. They can start to splinter off. You know, this isn't our year. Start to feel sorry for themselves. And Coach Young, Mike Young, would not allow that to happen. And literally, you would see him do this all the time. He was like, hey, guys, we're this close. We're this close. Just stay with me. Keep believing. And he just kept pouring confidence into our guys. And our guys ate it up. They fed into it. They embraced it. And the very next game after that two and seven, we go down to Florida State and we had not won at Florida State, Virginia Tech and not won at Florida State since sometime in the early 90s, I believe. And it was a place that we had not had any success and we win. And then we're three and seven. And then we win five more games and we win six in a row. Then we lose to Carolina in a game here. And it was literally a speed bump. Like, okay, that didn't go smoothly. Let's regroup, refocus. And then we won a few more games in a row. And it just coaches perspective on it. And then the resiliency of our guys was just 
it was unbelievable. And I just think just to make it as plain as possible, there's no way that we do that without Mike Young leading us. And he led us to believe that we were always just this close. And when we started to achieve that success, you know, because at some point in time, you know, you've lost seven. And it's just like, you know, eh, a lot of other people be like, you know, you keep saying that, coach, but like we're, we're losing. We keep saying that we're two and six. We just played great. Now we're two and seven. Like you keep saying that. And I just know so many other teams would have totally just crumbled and fall. Coach, you say, you know, his approach. And when you're two and seven and you just had another loss, kind of looking at maybe the micro and the details that next day at practice, you know, what is coach's approach that you said eventually added up that made the difference? Yeah, I mean, it's like that thing. I know everybody's seen that graphic of somebody in a tunnel under the ground, picking away with an axe, and there's gold right on the other side, and there's the two pictures, and one just turns around and walks the other way, and the other one just keeps picking at it. And that was Coach's approach. He was like, just keep with it. Stay with it. And, again, you're this close. You're this close. Like, the next swing of the axe could be the breakthrough. And we really believe that. We really believe that, hey, as long as we just stay to what we're doing, we trust what we're doing, we trust our leadership. We're right there. And lo and behold, that next swing and a half happened to be in Tallahassee. We had a great win and we just took off from there. And from a tactical approach, especially as a staff, I mean, are you guys, like you said, staying consistent? What we're doing is right, will work? Or, you know, how are you guys trying to find answers maybe from a tactical side to help your guys win and turn that corner? Yeah, and I think that's the big thing. You know, a lot of times in situations like that, maybe a team just does something different. You throw in a new defense. Say, yeah. You do something that no one expected you to do. We didn't do any of that. We literally kept with the same thing we had been doing for the previous 20 games. Like, again, we were 10 and 10, and a lot of people were like, oh, my gosh, Virginia Tech's just not good enough. And we weren't like that. We just literally came in at the very same practice we had had before, we had played Miami. We had that before Florida State, and we just stuck to what we truly knew was the right thing. It just hadn't clicked yet. Coach, love to ask you about being the hunter versus being the hunted. And obviously, what we're talking about right now, you guys had a little bit more of the hunter mentality. But previously, before that, uh, you had unbelievable run at Demathic High School, and you were much more in the role of the hunted. And I'd love to know your thoughts as a coach from that perspective of being on two different sides of it and what that felt like and your learnings there. So I'll have a kind of two-part answer. My first part is, and this is what I've promised myself, and I hope this comes off the right way. I will never feel like the hunter. I just won't. Every level I've played at, every level I've coached at, I've been the hunted, and I do believe that that mentality personally helps me. Like, I have something I'm defending. I'm not trying to take something from somebody. I have something that I am guarding with every ounce of my brain as a coach and preparation and just my mentality. I am guarding being elite. I am guarding being a champion. I am guarding being a winner. And I truly embrace I promise myself that no matter what circumstance, I'm proud of the fact that I can say I can never remember showing up to a game, especially as a coach, but I believe as a player as well, 
not just thinking I was going to win, but really believing my team is going to win this game. I'm proud of that. And I don't want to coach if that's not the case. And even if my team is quote unquote overmatched, I believe that there are always going to be things that we can do to even that out. That is my mentality. Now, reality is reality, though. We're Virginia Tech. We're not a blue blood. We're, in theory, chasing the Dukes and the North Carolinas and things like that. So being the hunter in that respect is fun because I do believe we've got a winning mindset on our side that it's up to them to not screw it up. Like, we're going to come in there guns blazing, doing everything we possibly can to win this game. And you've got to defend it. Like, we're coming at you. You've got to hold us off because our team is made up the way we are. We're going to come in this thing shooting this ball. Like, are you going to be able to stop us? Okay, you stop that one, but we got four other guys that can shoot the ball. Are you going to be able to stop all four of us? And that mentality is fun. That is, like, we know... The way coach coaches and the way coach has assembled his roster, you're going to have a tough time guarding us. I don't care who you are. And you're going to have some heartburn. You're going to have some sleepless nights trying to figure out how to prepare for us. So I've embraced that part of it from a team concept because we're going into this. And I know we have pieces that are capable of hunting. We have a roster made up that are capable of hunting and we've been prepared to go on the hunt to win. So I've got both sides of those. I will never allow myself personally to feel like I'm the hunter. I am always going to be the hunted, but the battle with these group of guys as the hunter has been unbelievable because I know who we are, how we've been prepared. And I don't care who it is you put in front of us. We're going in that to win. Again, I get that energy from coach young coach. Love that answer for yourself personally. And then I wonder about coaching kids who know that they're the hunted versus kids who know there is a hunter at a certain point and motivation and handling pressure. You know, was there a difference to you when you were coaching a team in high school that you knew, you know, big games, you guys were expected to win, you guys expected to win versus this run with Virginia tech, where you guys were on this magical run at the end of the year, you're beating all these teams did you see a difference with pressure and handling that with the players? Definitely a difference. I think the biggest thing as the hunted has always been, that's what you signed up for. Like guys that came to the math that they knew they would come there and they were going to be the favorite. They were going to be the school that everybody wanted to be. You know, we, you know, we're everyone's Super Bowl, so to speak. We knew that. And that's what you signed up for. That's what you wanted to be a part of. There are some kids that don't want that. They want to be the hunter. They don't want to be. I don't want to go to the team that always wins. I want to be one of the teams to knock them off. But I've got a bunch of guys that are going to defend that with everything they have. It's been my career to be that. And I want kids. I'm That energy I have about I don't ever want to be the hunter. I want to be the hunted. That energy I'm pouring into my players. I'm letting them know, like, hey, you come play for me. You know what this is, and we're going to get it every single night. And I think if you look, I'm, I'm extremely proud of a lot of things, but one of them is you look at the guys that played for me at the Matha and what they go on to do. I attribute that to their immense blessing and talent, their immense work ethic, 
but then also they've always been the hunted. So they've always had to bring their A game. They can't have a night off because they know whoever they're playing against is coming after them with everything they have. And you take that and you translate it into now you're playing for a college program. You know you've got to bring it every day. That's why our guys play earlier than guys that come from other places. They start earlier than guys that come from other places. And they win more. And that's a cultural thing from the whole DMV area. But I think that is definitely something that we embraced at the map. Coach, staying on this pressure topic, and when you get to a late game, whether you're the hunter or the hunted, it's a close game. Yeah. Do you notice any difference where if it's a close game and you're the hunted or it's a close game and you're the hunter in terms of finishing out that game? It's all preparation. It is all preparation. It will always be preparation. Again, my mentality personally of we're going to win. Mm-hmm. Like I, I remember many times at the map telling my guys, hey, you guys get me to the championship. I'll make sure we win this game. Just get us there. Get us there. And I'll make sure that we are the best prepared team and we'll get it done. And we won way more championship games than we lost because of that. Coach Young is 6-0 and in championship games. Like, he's never lost one. And I can't speak to say that that's his same mentality, but there's got to be some of that in him too because, hey, we have prepared for this. We know what the other team is coming at us with, and we are defending something. We didn't go into the ACC championship game this year against Duke saying, oh, man, we're happy to be here. Oh, man. Like, we wanted to get to the tournament, and we knew we were a quote-unquote bubble team. The only way to guarantee we were going to make the tournament was to win the game. So let's go win the game. Right. Like, let's not, you know, get on this flight tomorrow, land in Blacksburg and figure out, man, did they put us in? Did they not put us in? Let's worry about what our seed is going to be because we're nowhere in. And that was the mentality. And I think late game situations, two minutes left, things like that. If you prepared for that, you know, at DeMatha every day, we would go through late game situations. Hey, you're up to with two fouls to give. You have no timeouts left and the other team shooting one-on-one. How are we going to play this out? So any situation that would ever come up in a real game, we've done it already. And we've been successful at, it. you know, situations you get in games. Like what if you don't have any timeouts and you can't bring them over to tell them, Hey, this is what I want to do. You need to be able to say something to them in a very short phrase and they all immediately. So they know what to do. But then the other thing is them having the confidence that it'll work. And they will have the confidence that it'll work if you've done it before. And you can't force a game to get the reps. Like you have to do it every day in practice. So we ended every practice that I could ever remember at DeMatha with time and score, late game situations that prepared our guys for any of those that we would ever come about. And Again, I'm seeing the same thing at the college level. Hey, coaches, we'd like to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Instat. They have been hands down the biggest resource we've used in generating our content. Their expansive database of over 30,000 players and 7,000 teams gives us the access we need to scout, notice trends, and learn from some of the best coaches in the game today. So join coaches of all levels who are using Instat to better prepare for their opponents, self-scout, and develop their players. 
by going to instatsport.com slash form and entering the promo code SGPOD. Coaches can receive one free month of Instat Scout and 10% off their subscription. That's SGPOD at instatsport.com slash form. Thanks again to Instat for their support. And now back to our conversation. Just to kind of tie things with DeMatha a little bit here. You took over for a legendary coach, Morgan Wooten, and some of the things you're talking about, I wonder how much you took from him and your relationship with him. Everything that comes out of my mouth is founded (laughs) in something that I got from Coach Morgan Wooten. I've been fortunate enough in my career to be around great basketball coaches. Obviously, the first one on that list is Morgan Wooten. I played for him, and then I came back and coached with him. And to say that every single day you're leaving a practice with him with something that's either been a seed planted in your brain or something that's a eureka moment and you're just like, oh, my gosh, I will never forget that. And then once I became the head coach, Coach Wooten was the most humble, gentle man ever. He supported me through thick and thin, but he never wanted me to feel like he was affecting or influencing or Mm -hmm. poking his nose in. So I literally would have to go to him to ask questions. I would have to go to him to say, hey, coach, going through this right now, like what advice would you give me? Because he would never, he'd come to the games, he'd give me a thumbs up after the game, and he'd leave. He'd come to the school during the day to exercise, walking around the track above our court. I would have to go out there and either stop him or walk with him if I wanted to ask him something. Other than that, it was like, hey, Mike, good win last night. Good luck tomorrow. And that was it. He never wanted to feel like he was overstepping his bounds, which for the greatest basketball coach ever, how would you ever overstep your bounds? (laughs) Um, But I truly appreciated that from him. And I think the coolest thing about Coach is he was not only like that for me, but he was like that for so many other guys. He's like that for Mike Bray. He was like that for all the for his son, Joe, you know, who's a great coach. For, you know, Dwayne Simpkins used to be a high school head coach. Vaughn Jones was a high school head coach. All guys that played with me at DeMath and we all played for Coach. He provided that soundboard for so many of us. And Coach, just someone that was a mentor like that to you, I guess, what is it? And you mentioned it a little bit, but things that when you're mentoring other coaches now, things that you take from him that you try to pass along. Well, his relationships are, or were amazing. Just how he related to people and his ability to adapt over. I mean, he coached through six decades, successful in all of them. You know, he coached at a time where there were no black players. He coached at a time that there was no internet. He coached at a time where, you know, basketball, high school basketball was strictly local. Like Coach Wooten was at the forefront of all of those changes. He was one of the first guys to have black players. He was one of the first guys to, I mean, the 1960s when DeMatha played Power Memorial and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's team, like that was the first national high school basketball game that, you know, Time Magazine covered it. Like, you know, it was, he was at the forefront for so many different progressions. Like, he made taking charges famous. Shoot, he started summer camps. <laughs> like, I mean, he, 
he was at the forefront of so many things and his effect that he had on the game, his fingerprints are all over the game. And just, I mean, you, I can go on like, you know, his relationships his being innovative, uh, him adapting to every change in the game that you can possibly think of his ability to set a standard and then continue to raise that bar. The fact that he was such a class man that he never lost his cool, like coach never cussed you out. He'd be really sarcastic and make you feel this small, <laughs> but he never, you know, he'd never curse. Like I don't, I never heard coach say a curse word. He was always the smartest guy in the room, but never acted like he was the smartest guy in the room. You know, I used to play golf with coach every now and then in the off seasons and you know, to watch him manipulate the golf game on the first tee before anybody <laughs> hit a ball was amazing. Like he literally, he'd be playing with two other guys that are clearly better than him. But at the end of the day, you know, you're giving coach your 10 bucks because you lost. <laughs> and it's just like, how did he do that? But I mean, he was, he was just smarter than everybody, but never behaved like he was smarter than everybody. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Coach, hearing you talk about Coach Wooten and obviously the Matha and your time at the Matha and now the success you guys had this season at Virginia Tech and what you mentioned earlier, just kind of building up Virginia Tech, what goes into building a successful program, maintaining a successful program? I think one of the biggest things is you embrace your purpose. Like as a leader of a team, what is your purpose? Like it's you got to win games. And obviously that is what you're going to always be measured by. What I've always recognized is your impact on the people that you're coaching goes far beyond that. I think Coach Wooten had such a reverence for the relationships that he was building with his players that each and every guy that played for him believed that Coach cared about them beyond how many points I score, how many rebounds I get. Mike Young is the exact same way. He clearly cares about these kids well beyond their basketball abilities. And to care about them beyond that is one thing, but for them to know that you care about them beyond that is, to me, the coup de grace. It's what has to happen. Guys will run through the wall for Mike Young because of that. Uh, They'll do whatever. They believe when he tells them something, they believe it because they know that he cares about them. What he tells them is not just so we can win tomorrow. It's so that you can be prepared to do all the great things that the Lord will bless you with in your life, and you'll be prepared to do that. I find that that's the common thread. Like To build a program, you have to have a purpose, embrace that purpose, and that purpose is beyond just wins and losses. You also have to be flexible. You Cannot, I'm a firm believer, this is my opinion, you can't coach everyone the same way. You can't. Guys are too different. Personalities are too different. Uh, Backgrounds and home life and how you were brought up and raised are just, no one's the same. I don't believe you can coach everybody the same. Some guys, I can motivate you by like really getting under your skin. But you do that to the next guy and you may lose You know, some guys, you have to put your arm around them and talk to them and you can't embarrass them. You know, you more one on one correction and instruction than 
in front of the whole group. But then you do that with some kids and they take advantage of it and they're lazy. And in order for you to be able to decipher which strategy you're going to use for which kid, you've got to know them. You've got to know them. You've got to care enough to get to know them so that you can make those proper assessments. This has been awesome so far. We want to transition now to a game that we call Start, Sub, or Sit. I'm ready for this. <laughs> okay. This is my favorite part. This is my favorite part. Us too. Us too. So for those listening for the first time, we're going to give you three different basketball topics, ask you to start one, sub one, and sit one on the bench. Uh, you have not heard any of these, so these are completely off the cuff. So coach, this first start, sub, or sit has to do with elite guard play and the things that you think are most important that go into an elite guard. So start, sub, or sit, handling pressure, managing a game, or peer leadership? Uh, okay. Uh, all right, so I, I have a question. Okay. Is this over the course of time? Is this one season? Is this one game? Like, what are we dealing with? Do I have a freshman guard that I get to coach for four years, and this is where I want to start with them? Are we in his senior year and this is what I need this season? Like, what, what are we dealing with? So let's say you have, you know, let's say at the end of this player's senior year and they become a great guard. Okay. All right. So I'm going to go with pure leadership start. Okay. Um, and I'm going to go with pure leadership because you want a program. You don't want a team. You want a program. And if this young man has been a leader, then he is not only going to be successful in this season we're currently in, but he's also preparing all the guys behind him for us to be successful next year when he's gone and the year after when he's gone. So to me, that is going to be the most important thing. Again, one of the things I'm so proud of is the success that I've been able to be blessed enough to be a part of has been sustained success. Not you were good one year and then you were just middle of the pack. And then you were good another year, and then you went back to the pack. Like, we've been consistently good on the teams that I've been a part of. And that's for a lot of reasons, but one of them is because those teams were coached with a program in mind, not just a team in mind. So I would definitely start leadership. Managing a game is something that I would love. That would be my second choice because – Managing a game, you have to be able to do. And that is more immediate. That is more versatile in terms of you've got to be able to do a lot of different things to manage the game. You've got to be able to take care of the ball. Like, so you have to be able to handle pressure somewhat. Um, You have to be able to think all five positions. You've got to be able to communicate to manage a game. You have to be that second brain. Like, you're connected with your coach to be able to adjust to what's going on on the floor on the fly, and then to be able to communicate during dead time to make sure that what's what needs to happen. And then handling pressure, I think, is one of the most underrated teachable things. So I would say sit that because I won't ever call it easy, but that is one of the more coachable things and one of the more teachable things that you can do. And again, a lot of times that is just preparation. Coach, with managing a game, I'd love to know when you get a freshman and then taking him to a senior year, where are you starting? Or what are the biggest, uh, is it weaknesses or holes that he's missing in managing a game that from like day one, you're going to start working on him with? 
So it's, again, it's kind of like that coaching thing. Like, there's no blanket answer to that. Yeah. Like, it depends on the kid. You know, I coached a kid named James Robinson. James Robinson is the only player that I know of, and the WCAC being the great league that it is, James Robinson played in four WCAC championship games, won his first three, lost the fourth year on a last-second shot, on the final possession, basically. He would have gone down as literally the winningest player for our conference in playoff history. Like, there, there will be no way to beat that. Like, you can't play five years of high school. Yeah. He would have won every single playoff game that he ever played in. So he went, he finished his 11-1. and one. He came to me as a freshman, very prepared. He could handle pressure. He could shoot the ball. He had great decision-making. He went on to play for the University of Pittsburgh, and when he left Pittsburgh, he was the all-time leader in assist-to-turnover ratio in college basketball. Like, he had it before he got to me. So, you know, I'm always careful to make sure I don't ever take credit for any kid that played for me and what they were able to work to. But James Robinson is clearly an indication that, yeah, I didn't have anything to do with it. <laughs> I mean, he came to me just being such a poised young man. He's playing overseas now, playing great. I want him to come coach with me one day. Like, he's going to be a great coach. But he is one that is a perfect example of he came to me ready to go. Elijah Hawkins is a freshman this year at Howard University. Elijah Hawkins played uh, in the DeMatha program for four years. Um, he played JV as a freshman and then played three years of varsity. Elijah Hawkins, an incredible talent. He's a smaller guard. And I remember when Elijah first came to us, he was one that if the game was like this, unbelievable. Unbelievable. He was fast. He made quick decisions. You know, he was just a small guard that was so tough. He can get in the lane and make shots. He could pull up and shoot. He made great passes. Like, he could really hound the ball defensively, you know, the full court. But when the game slowed down to half-court basketball, he was not as effective. And I remember telling him as a freshman, I was like, look, man, the one thing that I am determined to help develop is your ability to run a team so that if the game is like this, you're going to be great. But if the game's in the half court, you're going to be just as good, just as great. And I remember his junior year, we go 30 and three. We finished number two in the country. And literally before that season, everybody said, well, the math is not going to be good because their point guard play is not going to be good enough. And Elijah Hawkins had progressed to the point where if it was a half court game. He was just as good as it was if he was in the full court. And I was so proud of him because he embraced I need to get better at that. He embraced learning. He embraced the coaches on our staff that really tried to work with him. He embraced it in the offseason when he was with his AAU team. He embraced truly developing that part of him. And you can almost look at it, you know, for a point guard, especially as like, you know, you've got the two sides of your brain. Like the, the fast break side of his brain was already developed, but he needed to really develop that half court side of his brain. And he did that. Um, and I give him all the credit. I mean, there was a distinct pleasure in winning a championship his junior year because no one thought we would, and they were going to be quick to point at him as the reason why we didn't. And he wouldn't let us lose. He would not let us lose. That's a great example. And with Elijah, what were the things then that he improved upon in the half court? 
slowing down. Like, you know, when you're doing like this all the time, when somebody pressures you, you just go by him. Like, yeah. hey, like, yeah, he's up on me, so I'm going to go by him. Or some guys are just wired to when you pressure me, I'm going to go score. So you'll stop pressuring me. And that's you can't do that. You like you can't do that. So in a half court, if I get up and pressure you and all you want to do is just put your head down and get in the lane. Now you're stuck like because there's been no movement. There's four guys around me. I'm not, you know, six foot five and can see over things. I'm, you know, I'm five ten, and I, I'm in a position now where now what do I do? He embraced always being under control. He embraced, I've got the ball. I've got the one thing that everybody on the court right now wants. I've got it. So I am in control. So you can't speed me up. You can't make me get out of. If coach wants us to run this play, this is the play we're going to run and I'm going to get the ball over there. No matter what you do standing in front of me, you come trap me. I know where my other four teammates are and I know one of them is open. So I'm going to get the ball to them. If you're trying to double me off of this ball screen, I'm going to let you double me and I'm going to take you so far away from the action. So now when I throw it, you guys are scrambling to catch back up and I've got four great teammates. So I've done my job into making sure we have the proper space on the floor. He became elite at that. Coach, I'm wondering, you know, he made the change and and obviously became a better half court guard. Things that worked with him to have that light kind of flick on was it film? Was it talking about other players? Was it drill work? Was it just conversations? Was it just natural maturity? I mean, what was it in his case? Everything. Everything you just mentioned. To be able to have him be able to see himself on film and see what it looked like when he was getting sped up, when he needed to be more under control, to have him see that, one. Two, to have older guys reinforcing what we're telling to reinforce and like really talk to him about, hey, dude, this is what we need to have him do that. To have some of our great point guards from the past and there being a standard of what you are supposed to be able to do just for him to recognize like I'm playing at a place that's had Quinn Cook, that's had Jeff Peterson, that's had Nigel Munson, that's had Terrell Allen, that's had Markel Fultz, that's had Jarris Lyles. Like he knew he was playing the position that all of those other guys had been successful at. And he wanted to continue that. So I won't call it pressure, but he embraced, again, what he signed up for. He embraced it. And he's gone on to be one of the best freshmen in college basketball this year. Coach, you sat handling pressure, and you mentioned that is something that you think you teach in preparation and all that. Really specific I'd like to ask about is teaching guards to get open and get the ball against pressure, whether it's, you know, sideline out of bounds and are being overplayed or whether late game baseline out of bounds and they got to come get the ball and handle a trap. Like, how do you teach those things? Dan, great question. So anyone that's ever been to the math of basketball camp can tell you that we did this once a week, every week, every session we had. Um, I would basically get one of my players and we, it would always come after, maybe the second day of camp when I go watch a game and there's one guy with the ball and he's dribbling with his head down and four of his teammates, you know, if, if Mike's got the ball, everybody's Mike, 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 I'm open, Mike, Mike. And like, literally we'd get our guys, we'd sit camp down in the morning and I'd get one of my players to dribble the ball and I'd get four other guys to basically just scream at them. Like pass me the ball, pass me because then I'd be like, Hey, 
this is what you guys look like. And that would start the conversation of getting open. And we introduce it with V cuts and L cuts and backdoor cuts and fades and all of that. But we got to the point where I'd get one guy out there and then I'd have the campers pick the biggest, strongest, fastest other high school player that I had working camp and say, okay, if that's Dan, Dan, you go guard Mike. Dan, I will give you 20 bucks if you can keep Mike from getting the ball. And I'd be like, Mike, you got to get open. And then Mike would get open, and I'd throw him the ball. And then I'd say, okay, Dan, you do it. Patrick, you go join him. Now, you guys each will get 20 bucks if y'all can keep Mike from getting the ball. <laughs> and we'd do that, and Mike would get open. And literally, I would give them the money if they stopped. Uh-huh. Then I'd get three defenders. Then I'd get four defenders. Now it's starting to get a little crazy and be like, okay, so look, the only rule is you guys can't foul Mike. You can't hold him. You can't trip him. Like, this is basketball. But if y'all can stop Mike from getting open, I give you guys each 20 bucks. And at the end, it'd be five defenders and Mike. So Mike would get 100 bucks. He would get the 20 from all of them. Okay. He would get 100 bucks if he could get open. But each of those guys would get 20 bucks if they can keep him get open. And I do not recall a session over the years that we ran basketball camp that Mike did not get open against five defenders. And that was kind of the genesis of, if you really want the ball, you'll get the ball. Uh If you really want to get open, you'll get open. And I was the passer, so I was going to throw him open if I had to. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, But literally, it can be done. And obviously, that is a totally unrealistic circumstance. Like, you're never going to have five guys trying to stop you from catching the ball. So if you can do it with five guys on you, then there should never be a time in the game that you cannot get open if you really want the ball. And if you're too tired to get the ball, then you shouldn't be in the game. Shouldn't be in the game. Coach, piggybacking off that, I mean, you mentioned that you were the passer, so you're going to get him open. What role does the passer play? What are you working on with the passer? Is it anticipation? Is it just throwing it to the correct spot? What goes into getting your teammate open? Being connected. Being connected. How many times do you see a guy being overplayed and then the guy with the ball being pressured and I'm trying to get rid of it, and I wind up throwing it out of bounds because the guy cut back door. Like, for guys to actually be on the same page is huge. For guys to know, like, hey, he's getting ready to cut back door. Or, hey, I know if I throw it there, he's going to get his top foot on top of his defender. So if I just throw it to that spot, he's going to make sure he gets there before the defender gets there and I don't get a turnover. Like, but for guys to be connected like that. And, again, the better your practices are with guys pressuring each other, just obviously the translation into games is going to be that much better. Hey, coaches. This segment of Start, Sub, or Sit is brought to you by our friends at Practice Planner Live. Practice Planner Live has combined all the components of effective, efficient, and time-saving practice planning into one easy-to-use platform, saving your most valuable resource as a coach, time. Ditch the Word docs and the scribbled legal pads for a simple point-and-click experience to build your drill directory, collaborate with your staff, and create clean, customized, and shareable practice plans in minutes. With over 75,000 practice plans created at the professional, collegiate, high school, AAU, and youth levels, Practice Planner Live is proven to raise the level of organization and effectiveness of any program. Listeners of the podcast can visit practiceplannerlive.com and register for a free 21-day trial 
and enter the promo code SGPOD to get 10% off your subscription. Thanks for listening. And now back to our conversation. All right, coach. Our next one is unusual pick and roll locations, but unusual, but effective. And maybe pick and rolls you would think about running more. So the three locations are the deep corner pick and roll. So getting it below the free throw line, a post pick and roll or a pick and roll at like half court running up, setting sort of that a flat screen, or you'll see sometimes teams will send both guys up there like a horns almost pick and roll. So this isn't fair. So this is easy <laughs> for me. Okay. I am starting the post pick and roll. I am subbing the half court pick and roll and I am sitting the corner pick and roll. All right. So I'm sitting the corner pick and roll because it is so little space, so easy to trap. You're limited in your options. I need the guys that have options. Obviously, it's inevitable. It will happen every now and then. But any pick and roll that I'm defending that happens pretty much below the free throw line on the side, we're going to trap it. We're going to trap it. We've got the sideline and the baseline as two extra defenders. We're going to make you as uncomfortable as possible and then rotate over so that the only pass you'll be able to make is basically back out to the half court line on the total opposite side of the floor. And if we've got the personnel that I would love to coach, we're going to have long athletic guys that that pass is going to be way too difficult to make with any accuracy. So I'm I'm sitting that don't want any parts of that. (laughs) Um, I'm starting post pick and roll because I believe I, I love it. I love post pick (laughs) and roll. I love it when you can throw the ball into the post guy catches it, looks, 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 throws it back out and then chases it. I also love dribble handoffs out of the post. Like I caught it on the block and I'm looking, looking, nothing. And I'm driving literally at the three-point line at the defender guarding the guy that passed me the ball. And I literally just hand it off to him and they're able to get downhill with it. Love it. Love it because it's not normal. And a lot of times it's unsuspected. Dan, you're posting me up and I've got my forearm and your back and everything like that. And the next thing you know, Instead of you banging into me, you just release. And again, a lot of ball screen defenses, I have to be connected to you as you go out there. Well, I was just bumped into it, and now you're gone. And like, oh, shoot, now my brain has to immediately shift to, okay, what coverage are we in? Uh, Am I hard hedging? Am I dropping? Am I blitzing it? Like, what am I doing? And I'm at least a half a second behind. So I love that. Love it, love it, love it. We'll start it every day, all day put it in any way I can. <laughs> and then obviously, you know, the sub, like being able to have any actions at the half court line, always keeping in mind. And I use the term point guard one-on-one. Anytime that a point guard makes a mistake that I believe to be just at the core of what point guard play is, I was just say, yo man, that's point guard one-on-one. Like you don't make plays within a stride of the half court line a stride before half court, a stride after half court. It's just way too easy for something to go wrong there, especially after you've crossed half court because now you cannot go backwards. So those horns coming up, just making sure that they're at the jump ball circle, not at the half court line. Like you've got to give your your teammate, you know, space to be able to operate up there. We'll start with your favorite, the post pick and roll. I'm really curious just if he's going to go throw it out and run into a pick and roll. The angle, do you always want it going to the middle, to the baseline, or is it 
it depends and it's read the defense where you can set that screen. It depends. And like I think one of the most effective times to do it is in zones. I love picking or screening in zones anyway, especially ball screens in zones mm-hmm. because it makes the zone shift. But if we can throw the ball, let's just say it's a one, three, one, and we're going two, one, two against it. And I throw that thing to the free throw line. And my guy catches it and he faces up and there's nothing there and he throws it back out. Depending upon who closes out on where the ball goes should determine where my angle is. Okay. If it's one three one, maybe I'm setting more of a skinny ball screen so they can get downhill going towards the baseline because now everything is coming down and I can make passes out of there, you know, relatively easy. If I'm throwing it back to the top, depending upon again what kind of zone it is and where the defense is. I'm obviously going to send them, you know, to one of the sides to, you know, a, you can't really be in weak coverage and, 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 and ball screens in a zone defense. So, like, they might want you to go weak, but now I'm sending you to your right hand. And now the person you're driving at has to choose. Do I leave this shooter here to come stop the ball? If they don't, you keep going. Or if they do come off, it's a quick stop, kick out to a shooter on the side. Like, I just think it provides so many. Like, you can't say... Unless you're running a set, you can't really say the angle of the no. screen. It's just If you're just playing, it's going to be whatever is appropriate uh, for that possession. Coach, can you just elaborate again on a skinny ball screen you said and, and what that means? Skinny ball screen means it's closer to the side, So, and I'm sending him to the skinny side. So okay. you got the fat side. You know, yeah. if, I'm, if I'm slot and over, whereas yeah. I got the slot and then across the lane and to the other side. Yeah other side so a skinny side is i'm going to that skinny side so i'm going sideline side of the ball screen all right so coach our last start sub sit for you have to do with analytics that really matter and having to do with margins of victory so margins that you would look at analytically let's say at halftime or pre-game post-game saying we've got to win this margin to be successful tonight so Start, sub, or sit, winning the rebound margin, winning the free throw attempt margin, or winning the turnover margin? Ooh. <laughs> That's tough. <laughs> uh, wow. All three of those things deal with, in some way, shape, or form, toughness. So that makes it really tough to pick. Uh, Ah, I'm going to go, we're going to start rebounding margin. Okay. I cringe when I say that though. <laughs> um, we're going to sit free throw attempts and we're going to sub turnover margin. Me saying that rebounding margin and turnover margin are more important, but that's, I can be easily swayed to change that. <laughs> uh, and I'll say it this way. This is my train of thought. Rebounding margin no matter what, like even before analytics were a thing, if you out-rebounded your opponent, you were going to win most of the time. And when it comes down to it, you want to win the game. So uh, if that gives me the best chance to win, that's why I'm going with rebounding margin. It does speak to your toughness. It does speak to whether or not you got offensive rebounds or limited the other team's offensive rebounds. So, again, that goes into how many shots you got or how many possessions you got uh, in the game. And, again, if I'm out-rebounding you, that means I'm getting more shots, more possessions than you're getting, which name of the game is to score more points than you. So yeah. 
that's going to give me the best chance to win. So I'm going to go with rebounding. Uh, turnover margin, same thing. If I'm turning the ball over, then I'm getting less shots. You're getting a chance to score more. So that's definitely going to be something that I'm clearly focused on. Some teams are okay with the higher number of turnovers because of the pace that they play. I want to play fast and take care of the ball. Yeah, I want it all. I want, <laughs> I want both. So, and then the free throw, again, speaks to your toughness because if all you're doing is shooting jump shots, you're not going to get to the free throw line. Uh, if you're not attacking the rim, you're not putting any pressure on the other team. That can be looked at a certain way. But again, if you're a really good shooting team, maybe you don't shoot. Like we didn't shoot many free throws this year. I don't. There was a lot of our games, and I wish I could tell you the exact stat, but a lot of our games, we shot less free throws than our opponents. But we shot the ball so well. We took care of the ball so well. And at the end of the season, we rebounded the ball so well. Those other things clearly were more important sure. than how many free throws we took. And we may have taken less free throws than our opponent, but we made a really good percentage of them. So we wound up maybe you go 18 for 25, we go 18 for 20. You shot five more free throws, but we made the same amount. Sure. So, um, again, really good shooting team. It didn't cost us as much. So, mm-hmm. yeah, Coach, I know a really tough question. Like your, uh, your, your turnover margins, like the, the sixth man of the year, it's a Jamal Crawford type of um, <laughs> off, off the bench for you. Yeah. My question, though, my follow-up has to do with turnovers and the turnover margin and sort of a coach's role in helping limit a team's turnovers. Let's say at halftime you go in and you've been turning the ball over a little bit. As a coach and as a staff, do you look at turnovers as, hey, we just need to be smarter, guys aren't making good decisions, or sometimes is it a tactical thing where we're putting them into certain pick-and-roll situations, we're running a certain type of offense that maybe is causing problems? Do you talk about maybe ways that as a staff you can try to limit turnovers as well. Yeah, I mean, if you look at it, both. Yeah. Like both. Clearly it can be a, like I've gone into a locker room and say, look, we're turning the ball over too much. Stop. (laughs) Right. And it could be that simple. Like, hey, all right, I wasn't locked in. You know, I'm a little loose with the ball today. Like, I know we're better than them. I don't really have to be as tight with my handle today or Maybe I'll take a chance on making a pass that I normally wouldn't take a chance on. And you're so disappointed as a coach when your team does that because that you you allowed that. That's not on your players. That's you. And you never want that to be the case. So you nip that in the bud just by a quick statement. Or, you know, they hear, and eh, sub, like, and you're going to sit over here for a while because yeah. you know you should not have thrown that behind-the-back pass on the fast break right. that you wound up turning over. Like, you shouldn't have done that. So – you got that part to it. It could be, a, again, I, a 99% of basketball is preparation. Again, I gave you the example. Like, we're not putting any pressure on our ball handlers in practice or a lot of times the overlook part. Like, we talk about, I want you to contest the dribble. I want you to contest the catch. Contesting the passer is great. How many contest the catcher? Right. Like, How many balls do you see get dropped out of bounds because there's a little heat on the person catching the ball? Like, so did we prepare our guys to be able to handle pressure like that? So I'm going to contest a pressure to passer. I'm going to pressure the catcher. Um, I'm going to pressure the ball handler, like all of that, so that when we get in games and teams try to do that, that we've already prepared for. And then, yes, sometimes it can be tactical. 
if I know you're going to double team my best post player and we haven't drilled what you're going to do when you get doubled, we haven't drilled for you to recognize what side the double is coming from and you going opposite of that, or the player that's doubling is guarding me and I just stand there and look at him like, man, I hope that works out for you instead of me actually cutting or making myself available. Like, so it can definitely be a tactical thing. One of the things, you know, I like to do as a coach is I might want to trap ball screens, but I don't want to do that in the first half at all because at halftime you guys get to talk about, okay, if they trap ball screens, this is what we're going to do. I want you to have to use a timeout. And preferably I want you to have to use a timeout in the latter part of the game because it's the first time we've done it and now you're stuck. But that's more of a tactical thing. Like, hey, did we prepare – our point guard coming off this ball screen that if he gets trapped, like I was talking about yeah. with Elijah Hawk, like it became Elijah, you're going to get trapped. Drag this dude as far away from the ball screen as possible and then make the right play. Coach, with pressure on the catch, I'm curious, I would imagine it's obviously arriving with the catch and being there on him. But in terms of, are you telling your guys maybe to reach in there or with, you know, be active with their hands? Maybe it's a time to take the risk and gamble for a steal? Well, no, be there. Okay. Be there. And again, like the little details of the game, like, and again, this is something I've learned or not learned this year, but truly elevated my awareness of this year. Coach Young will tell our guys, hey, that pass has got to be outside hand. You know, if I'm on the left side of the floor, it's got to be to my right hand. Got to be there. And how many times you can see in a game where a guy's throwing it to the middle of my body or to my inside hand just because of the way I cut off of it. If Mm -hmm. I'm a defender and I'm there and you threw it to the inside hand, I'm sticking my hand in there. Like I'm getting a deflection. You may still catch the ball, but now you're catching it a little bit further out because I deflected the ball. And -hmm. now your timing's off. Like he was supposed to catch it and immediately feed the post. Well, he can't do that now all because I contested the catch. If I just say, well, hey, I'm trailing him off the screen. He's a non-shooter. I'm just let him catch it. Now he gets to catch it and feed the post just like he's supposed to. I hurt my team just by just that small detail of me not making it tough on you. Now, if he makes a great pass to the outside hand and I'm there, but I didn't affect it at all, what did I lose? Yeah. Nothing. Right. I'm still where I'm supposed to be. But if you watch in a game, there's so many passes that are made, especially because, again, the pass is being pressured. There's so many passes in a game that are not perfect. And that's where Reese Beekman uh, plays for the University of Virginia. And we're supposed to hate Virginia here. So, <laughs> But I appreciate good basketball. Yeah. And Reese Beekman was one of the best defenders I've ever seen play because he would get steals and deflections and things like that, all because whoever was supposed to catch the ball that he was guarding, he was right there every time. And all it took was just a quick extension of the hand, knock it away. Or, hey, that guy just thought he was open and Reese Beekman just shot the gap and took off and is dunking the ball on the other end. It's a skill. It's a skill. It's a very underrated skill because, again, it causes turnovers. It causes lack of confidence in the passer. It causes lack of confidence in the receivers. It's something that a lot of times gets overlooked. Well, Coach, you're off the start sub or sit hot seat. Thank you for that. That was great. I feel like I did all right, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you killed it. Best. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's 
good. Well, coach, as we close here, we got one more question for you before we do. This has been really, really fun. Thanks for making the time for us. Uh, It was a great conversation. So thanks for coming on. Hey, slapping glass. Like I said, I am a huge fan. Um, I really appreciate this. I literally, uh, my scout partner, Ryan Nadu, was in here. And literally, I was like, yo, man, basically, I need you to leave. (laughs) Like, you know, what's going on? I was like, I'm getting ready to do a podcast. And he was like, which one? I said, slapping glass. And he was like, oh, man. Like, that's one of my favorite. I listen to them all the time. I can't wait to hear it. So awesome. Uh, you guys have some fans over on this side of the country. <laughs> we, yeah, we appreciate, appreciate that. that. Thank you very much, Coach. Coach, our last question for you here, and it's one that we ask all our guests, is what's one of the best investments that you've made in your career as a coach? Okay, so this is probably the most difficult question you've asked me because – Investment can mean so many different things. And I truly believe that the best investment I've made has had nothing to do with money and has had more to do with time. And I believe the best investment I've ever made is the time that I've spent with people that challenged me and forced me to think differently. Being successful, becoming complacent, becoming arrogant, becoming a coach or a person that, eh, like what difference does it make? I am whoever I am is a scary thing, especially in this business. The investment that I've put into listening to people that did not necessarily tell me what I wanted to hear has been incredibly invaluable to me and my growth as a coach. I need to be around people that challenge me. It's human nature to be successful or to win or have something go in your favor and just assume that it'll be just that easy to do again. And that's not this, that's not this game. So the investment I've had in talking to parents, quick story, Justin Moore's plan for me. He's at Villanova now. He's the one that just yep. was Gillies. Yeah. But he's playing for me his senior year. We're having a great season. We're getting ready to play his last game of his career. The game before, I kind of had gotten on his case. I didn't think he was as focused as he should be. And Justin was never a, like, he's a great kid, would never challenge you or anything like that. And, like, I kind of went at him a little bit. It's, you know, just like, yo, like, are you even here? Do you even care if we win? And that's the last thing you want to say to Justin Moore. Like, he cares about winning more than pretty much any player I've ever coached. He's the winningest player in the math's history. Like, that's how much winning means to him. And I literally, I believe, I, I, I said, yo, do you even care if we win? And we had that conversation, and I go on about my business. Like, uh, yeah, I said what I said to him. All right, now, uh, what are we eating tonight? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm passing his mom. His mom is walking out of our hotel. I'm walking into the hotel. And we've, again, great family, great relationship. And this is the next day. And she says to me, she's like, Coach Jones, have you talked to my son today? And I'm like, no. Like, is everything all right? She was like, I'm not going to ever tell you how to do your job, but you probably need to go talk to my son. So I'm like, okay. So I literally go to his hotel room, knock on the door, 
And I'm just like, what's up, man? And he clearly is mad. He's like, what's up? I'm just like, are we good? And he was like, no, we're not. <laughs> and I'm just like, what, what's going on? He was like, yo, man, you, you basically asked me if I cared about winning. Like, basically, how dare you question that? And I was just like, wow. I was like, my fault? Didn't mean it literally. I was just trying to kind of get you to wake up. I kind of felt like you were sleepwalking. And again, he's not ever going to challenge you. But in so many words, he was like, well, then say that. Don't ever question whether or not I care about winning. And I appreciated his honesty. But that conversation never happens if I don't bump into his mother. Mm-hmm. And his mother basically in her very gentle and sweet way say, yo, you need to go talk to my <laughs> child because tonight's not going to go well if you two guys are separated like you are right now. And I had no clue, none. I said what I said to him in the locker room, left the locker room, and I thought everything was fine. So she challenged me. He challenged me. And I'm thankful to have learned a lesson there. Like, what you say to your kids really means something. And I thought nothing of it as I walked out of there. And that kid, he wound up having 30-some points in the championship game, and we win. And he was unbelievable. If I do not have that conversation with him, we probably lose his last game in his career. And for a kid that cares as much as he did about winning, that would have been awful. That would have been awful. So I appreciate and respect the investment I've made in spending time with people that are not just going to tell me what I want to hear. Thank you so much for listening to this episode please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Oh, do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. Let's roll <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs>